In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Because we are a people who need your word. Father, we are a people who love your word. For you are a God of truth and you reveal your heart through your laws, through your statutes, through the working in your people. Father, I pray um, right now for um, the families that are within our congregation for those struggling with illness, for those that are not here for us for whatever reason, um, because the race has kept them away, because um, they are heartbroken, because they don't feel that they can come. Father, I pray, and I pray for reconciliation, Lord, that your spirit would work in the hearts of our people, that we would love them well and bring them and point them towards Christ. Father, we pray especially for the Dean family today as yesterday we memorialized Al Dean uh, as he has gone to be with the Lord. I pray for his widow Jenny as she grieves the loss of her husband of over 60 years and for his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And I pray that yesterday, uh, by making much of the gift of Al, but most of all making much of Al's creator and Al's hope in the gospel that his uh, children and grandchildren uh, who may not know Christ would, um, the legacy that their grandfather has left, that would, they would come to know and trust uh, their grandfather's heavenly father and his, put their faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, we turn our hearts also towards the nation of China where the Wuhan promise, uh, province who are uh, many, many thousands and millions of people who are living in fear of the coronavirus. Nearly a thousand people who have lost their lives and have been swept into eternity, Father. And untold millions and billions in the nation of China who fear this virus. Father, Lord, use this this stalking virus that can take your life quickly, that they would be able to reassess what they value and hold near, and that the faithful Christians, we know in the underground church in China, there are millions and millions of Christians 
that they would be bold to be able to share the hope of the gospel that says nothing can separate us from love of God. There is no virus, no government, and no thinking that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And I pray that this virus would be redeemed for the glory of God. Father, I pray for the Chinese government, for the World Health Organization, for the CDC, um, Lord, that are working, that your common grace would work through the intelligence of scientists and doctors to be able to come up with a uh, remedy to this uh, hateful virus. Lord, we realize that it is a miracle of modern medicine to be able to work and it is only by your spirit guiding and enlightening the minds and hearts of men to be able to solve this riddle that we have and i pray that you would um, empower the people necessary to be able to come up with a, a solution for your glory we pray Father, be with us now as we open up your word that you, we would be satisfied in the words of Christ, that we may um, grow in our faith, that our love would abound and our hope in heaven would uh, increase. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. In the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Today we turn our attention to Mark chapter 8. Uh, we, some of you who have been here for a little while may notice that the details of this Mark chapter 8 seem vaguely familiar. And as we do, and I, I pray that we would see how God is working uh, in uh, Mark chapter 8 in Christ to give us a better, clear picture of, of who Jesus is. And what I want to do is I want to lay before you today what I desire for you to know and for you to love and, and for you to emulate in your own lives is the compassion of Jesus provides everything we need to be satisfied. The compassion of Jesus provides everything we need to be satisfied. I want to look today at three aspects of this story of Mark chapter 8. I want to see the compassion of Jesus as he sees the crowd. I want to see the clarity of Jesus' action as he moves. And I want to see the contentment that Jesus gives to all who come and trust him. So with that being said, we turn to Jesus' compassion, and for some reason now I'm realizing I don't have the points that will be coming up. Um, I glossed over that in my making of my PowerPoint. So we have Jesus' compassion, Jesus' clarity, and Jesus' contentment. I worked really hard on the C's there and finally pulled it off, because uh, you can't be a good uh, Baptist preacher if you don't have good alliteration. Um, so... Uh, we start to look at Jesus' compassion in Mark, cha or Mark chapter uh, 8, verses 1 through 3. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, uh, the, he, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. 
And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. We've been going through the book of Mark, and we see that everywhere Jesus went, crowds followed him in surging numbers. And when Jesus went into a house, crowds came and filled the house, and they filled the neighborhood around the house. When Jesus went to the Sea of Galilee, crowds followed them and and sat and listened to him. And now Jesus, after he has gone through the Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon and looped back down to the west side of the Sea of Galilee into the area of the Decapolis, which were ten Greek cities that were filled with Gentiles, Jesus again is drawing massive crowds to him that are clamoring some that they can touch him and receive healing from Jesus and others were just to be able to get close enough to Jesus so they could hear the voice of Jesus and be able to listen to his teaching that he had. And Jesus, as he is working with his group, talks about the fact now that he sees this crowd and he begins to preach to them and teach them. And actually, he does this now in this desolate place in the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He begins to teach them. And this is a fulfillment of what Jesus has already said in Mark 1.38. And Jesus said to them, let us go to the next town. I don't want to stay here and do miracle after miracle after miracle because that's not why I came. I want to go to the next towns because I came to be able to preach. And what was that message that Jesus was preaching? That message was repent and believe why for the kingdom of god is in your midst so jesus is not only now in the in the jewish areas but he's going into the gentile areas and these people are coming and they're uh, and they are being nourished by the words that jesus is teaching them but after three days and three nights now the heart and the compassion of jesus starts to grow because a specific unique need becomes readily apparent to the great shepherd of the sheep notice verse 3 jesus said if i send them away hungry to their homes they will faint on the way and some of them have come from a very far away jesus has spent enough time with these crowds And he knows the faces in the crowd are in certain danger if they leave this place without food. They've been here a long time and they probably the resources uh, that they have brought, they have consumed. And now Jesus says, if I send them away, they're going to face dangers and they're going to be hungry and they're going to fall and faint and I need to do something. And the compassion of Jesus' heart overflows to these people that are in need. Now, one of the really uh, the neat words about this word compassion is actually it's a Greek word that um, is based on the, uh, a word meaning entrails or vital organs. The heart, the liver, the kidney, uh, the lungs. And whenever it's used, it's used metaphorically for a person who is greatly and deeply moved within. And so Jesus, when he has compassion on this crowd, this is not a superficial, oh, they need to eat. They probably should get home. But he has a deep, 
passion and love for these people and compassion because he knows these people are in need and his heart moves deep within him to care for these people. It's the same word in, if you look probably maybe even across your page in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, uh, another feeding of the 5,000, actually probably more like 10 or 15,000, a much larger group. But Jesus said he looked upon the crowds and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so when Jesus saw they were sheep without a shepherd, what did he do? He taught them. And now, now in Mark, Mark chapter 8, Jesus looks upon the crowd and he sees, and he's teaching them, but he sees a new need. They're hungry and they're in danger of they leave to fall into danger and, 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 and um, peril. And what Jesus does is he feeds them. The compassion of Jesus always leads to action. Jesus saw their needs, he saw their peril, he was moved deeply in spirit, and he moved to action. He always moved to action because of his compassion. Last Sunday evening, we have been going through the parables of Jesus with R.C. Sproul and uh, the video series, and he looked specifically at the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan, in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus presents three people who see this need of a man that is laying in the ground, in the, on the, the highway, beaten, robbed, and naked within moments of his life. And it wasn't the Jewish priest, and it wasn't the Levite who was the assistant of the priest. It was not them who helped the Jewish man who was robbed and beaten. It was their arch nemesis, their, uh, the Samaritans. And it said the very word, the compassion, it says the Samaritan was moved with compassion for the man who lay beaten and dying. And his compassion led him to action where he picked up the man, he bound his wounds, and he brought him to, a, to an inn and paid for his care. Compassion of Jesus always leads to action. And we see the, the words of Jesus. He had compassion in Luke 10, 22. Compassion sees a per person in need and doesn't ask how that person got into the situation. Instead, regardless of how they got there, the compassion of Jesus says, I need to help them now that they're here. Jesus didn't get annoyed with them and say, you really should have packed more supplies. Didn't your mama teach you anything? Jesus didn't scold them. You know, you squandered your money on something stupid. Now you don't have enough money to buy bread. What are you going to do now? Jesus didn't sarcastically ask, did you really think we were catering lunch for this meeting? That's not compassion. That's a hard heart of the Pharisees. The compassion of Jesus moves him to action regardless of the people's checkered past, poor choices, or foolish actions. The compassion of Jesus says, if I don't do something that these people will suffer. Mark is giving us, Ocean Park, an incredible picture of what the heart of Jesus is and the mission of Jesus that he calls his people to accomplish. He's not looking for the self-righteous who attempt to earn Jesus's favor. 
Jesus is pursuing the humble who, don't, who know they don't deserve God's grace, and he moves with compassion to quickly meet their needs. The compassion of Jesus always leads to actions. I've been thinking about that. I made comments after the video last week. I want compassion like Jesus. I don't want to be a cynic. Who, else, who wants to be a cynic? A cynic poisoned by criticism and choked by realism. I'm just real. I want to see a person in need and be quick to help them. Ocean Park, do you want the compassion of Jesus? I don't want my compassion to be dependent on whether or not the person made good choices, has sound judgment, has wise spending, has fiscal responsibility. I want a heart that sees a need and is quick to respond to do what is necessary to meet that need. I want the compassion of Jesus. I want my children to have the compassion of Jesus. I want our church to overflow with the compassion of Jesus that sees a world that is needy and that is hungry and doesn't ask how they got themselves into that situation. I want a church that says, Jesus has had compassion on me and I am quick to pour that compassion out on a world that is needy. Why? Because we have received that compassion. Ephesians 4.32 talks about the responsibility of the church, and it says this, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. This is the same Greek word as compassion in the book of Mark, tender-hearted, not poisoned by cynicism, by doubt, by um, experience, but says, I see a need and I want to help that need. Forgiving one another. Why? Not to be able to one-up and they'll owe me, because as God in Christ forgave me and forgave you. The compassion of Jesus came to us when we were lost in our sin. He loved us before we loved him. He had compassion on us before we served him. He showed us grace before we knew him. And as the hymn writer says, and all my love is due him, he plunged me to victory beneath the um, cleansing flood or blood. One of the two. I'll look it up. That was off the car. It wasn't in my notes. One of the songs that we sing is this. I once was lost in darkness night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would love a rebel to your will. If, I had not lo- if you had not loved me first, I would refuse, me sti- refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, I looked upon, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's blood displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Chris, would you turn that TV back on for me? Uh, we got a new TV in the back and it keeps turning off on me. Um, so, Ocean Park, if the compassion of Jesus has led you to the cross in repentance, 
if you have tasted the sweetness of God's mercy, if you know the compassion of, of Christ, may your heart overflow with the same compassion as we point others to the cross because the compassion of Jesus provides everything we need to be satisfied. Are you thankful for God's compassion? Are you grateful for God's compassion? Is the compassion of Jesus your only hope in life and death? If it is, it should be overflowing to those who come in contact with you, those in need. But notice uh, the second point, Jesus' clarity. We see Jesus' compassion. Now we see Jesus' clarity in verses 4 and 5. And his disciples answered Jesus, how can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. Have you felt like you've heard this story before? How many people, when you think of Jesus feeding a large crowd, think of the 4,000? Or do you usually think of the 5,000? That's typically what it is. Even if you were to look across the page, if you're using the Pew Bible, chapter 8 is in the right-hand column. If you look in the upper left-hand corner, chapter 6 is right over on that other side. And you're like, I think Mark forgot. Because um, he already told this story. But the reality is there are a lot of scholars that say these two narratives are actually the same story. And the fish is actually the same. And they, they say this because there's a lot of similarities between the two. It's a desolate place. There's loaves and fish. Um, having the crowd sit down. And especially the response of the disciples. Look at verse 4. And the disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? This is almost like verbatim of how are we in the world are we supposed to feed them? It would take 100 denarii to be able to feed this many people. How are we supposed to do that? And so the, the uh, literary scholars who don't trust the authority of the Bible and the, uh, the inspiration of Scripture would say, clearly Mark was just repackaging this to show that Jesus was kind of a big deal and they wanted to people. But the reality is, let me ask you this to answer that question. How many of you believe that God is sovereign over the details of your life? I believe every single one of us, probably, if we're honest, would say yes, I believe that. But then let me ask you this. How many of you, when difficulties arise, um, you immediately worry about how God is going to work things out? Even though, maybe a month ago, Two, three months ago, God had provided mightily, and then a new problem comes, a new hurdle, a new obstacle comes. What do you do? Holy cow, what's going to happen? I, I, this is the end of the world as we know it. Disciples are not the only chumps in the room. There's another chump up here, at least. I won't, you know, I won't, my wife's not here, so that's good. I won't, you know. How many times do you have to remind yourself to trust Jesus over and over and over again? I know in my life, time and time again, when troubles and difficulties and struggle arise, I forget how God has faithfully provided more than I could ever ask or imagine. How I often say, how in the world will I be able to do this? Will I be able to pay this? How am I going to get myself out of this jam? When difficulties, and why is that? When difficulties are like, cause me to forget who God is and what he has done. 
when shoulder surgeries arise, when leaking roofs come, when strained relationships occupy my thinking, my doubts arrest my attention and they become my immediate focus and Jesus is pushed to the periphery. Jesus doesn't become my focus. My worries, my challenges, my obstacles become the first thing and the only thing I can see or think. When we find ourselves surrounded by rugged, desolate terrains of spiritual deserts, when we see uh, hungry crowds and the only thing we have are a measly pile of three-day-old fish, when we forget God's generous provision from similar needs and similar shortfalls not too far in the distant past. Notice verse, uh, chapter 8, uh, if you go on a little bit, verses 17 and 19. This is where Mark is leading us. Uh, it's on page 844, probably if you flip over. It says, do you not yet perceive or understand? The disciples in, uh, in, in Mark, uh, they don't really get it. They, they have faith. But they don't see the big picture really well. They don't really get the significance of what's happened. Do you not perceive or understand, verse 17? Are your, heart, um, are your ears hardened? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes that you do not see and having ears that you do not hear. And do you not remember what I'm doing? Oshabark, the Holy Spirit must constantly soften our hearts because we on our own are deaf and blind to who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is capable of doing. Oftentimes, our problems are big and our Jesus is small. We need the Holy Spirit to flip that to be able to see the greatness and the grandeur and the wisdom and the power and the authority of Jesus, the God we serve, and trust him. He knows what he's doing. But the good news is, is when we don't know what we're doing, when we're confused, when we doubt, when we're scared, when we're overwhelmed, when our worries consume our thoughts and they poison our attitudes, Jesus knows what he's doing. He's not a novice. He knows what he's doing. Notice verse 5. Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And, he direct, and Jesus directed the crowds to sit down on the ground. Mark chapter 6, the disciples had to do that. Jesus is like, I got this under control. I, let me sh- I'm about, let, I know what I'm about to do. Ocean Park, God is working even when we feel worried, when we're blind to what he's doing, when we have no perspective of the bigger picture, when we're distracted, when we're overwhelmed. Jesus has everything under control. Amen? Y'all, I I know some of your problems, and I know you're overwhelmed, and that's good news. This should stir our passion. I should get a hallelujah, a glory, something. At least I help him. When he is not, de- we, Jesus is not dependent on the depths of our faith or the levels of our understanding. He is the almighty God who holds heaven and earth. He holds your hearts, the hearts of your children, the hearts of your loved one, and he's moving and working according to his powerful goodwill. When, he, when we are weak, he is strong. When we are faithless, He is faithful. When we are overwhelmed, Jesus has everything under control. 
Ocean Park, when you don't know what to do, go to Jesus. Like we read to the children, when you're scared, say, Father, I'm scared. When, you're, when you say, I don't know what to do, be honest. Lord, I don't know what to do, but I know you do. And we turn our attention and we can trust the goodness of our God. When our faith is weak, when our perspective is clouded, when the questions overwhelm the answers, we trust the goodness of God and his compassion on his people because the compassion of Jesus provides everything we need to be satisfied. The compassion of Jesus provides everything we need to be satisfied. Notice uh, as we go into, we see Jesus' compassion. We see Jesus' what was the point? Clarity. And now we see Jesus' contentment or, uh, that he gives, verses 6 through 10. And Jesus took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set them before the people. And they set them before, the disciples set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to those also should set them before them. And they ate. And what happened? They were satisfied. Jesus took what was inadequate and insufficient and satisfied the hunger of 4,000 people. An insignificant amount of bread and fish. Jesus created a satisfying, sumptuous feast. With brilliant artistic flair, uh, Mark is showing this with a twist of the wrist and a little bit of color, and he puts this in with texture. All of a sudden, it's amazing as we look at this, this beautiful portrait of Jesus that Mark is, uh, is, is painting. And as we look closely at the details, we're like, this is amazing. And as we step back, we say, this is extraordinary who this Jesus is. Why do I ever doubt? How could one feed these people with a bread here in this desolate place? That's verse 4. How can anybody feed these people? That's what the disciples thought. How can God provide for this? How can this relationship be rectified? How can I ever provide for my family? How can I be able to walk through the valley of this illness? How can I live without them? What we need is Jesus. And for everything Jesus takes away from us, He gives us what He needs and He gives us Himself. What we can hold on to. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? The answer is, go to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus because He is the only one that can satisfy. I love this text because it is rich with symbolism. I love the fact that it's on a communion Sunday as well. I I really, it didn't work. I wish I could have taken credit, but I've been waiting for this sermon to hit on communion Sunday, and we're going to sing, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. That, That was just all my dumb luck. Um, that God is gracious and God is good. But right now, you see in the midst of the, the desert, you see these people with no answers coming to Jesus. And what is due? Jesus provides what they need and they're satisfied. Just like 4,000 people those three days, we find ourselves in many deserts. Paul Miller in his book, and this is my plug for the discipleship groups, if you didn't go last time, you missed out. 
Here it is. The hardest part of being in the desert is that there's often no way out. You don't know when it will end, and there's no relief in sight. A desert can be almost anything. It can be a child who has gone astray, a difficult boss, or even your own sin or foolishness. Maybe you're married to your desert. God customized deserts for each one of us. Think about it. There is great beauty and great satisfaction in the desert. Not because of the ample resources and a refreshing oasis that are always promised whenever we rub the genie or call the butler, despite the lack of those things. God uses the desert to teach you and to teach me to find contentment in Him alone. When your resources are depleted, when you taste the bitterness of your helplessness and your pride comes crumbling down and you can't put it back together again, when the reality of your circumstances finally breaks your will, when your suffering burns away your pride and your cynicism and your lust, only in the desolate places of the desert will you cry out to God with the psalmist and say, Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's the desolate places of life. It is the deserts that the Lord leads us in. Not that we trust our supplies and our joys and our, all the things that we try to bring on that finally say, if I'm going to survive, I have to give this up. And we drop it. And we turn to our Heavenly Father and say, I need you. Only the, desert, the desolate places can teach you that everything you need is provided in the compassionate heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Then and only then will you be satisfied in His provision. And like a little child who humbly lifts their empty bottle to their mother and says, more please, you will rejoice in the faithful provisions of exactly what you need that is provided by your Heavenly Father and your Heavenly Father alone who so loved the world that He did what? He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ. Johnny Erickson Tata, in her book of the month, the last time I quote it because I'm done with it, I'll maybe go back and get some. Contentment, being satisfied in Jesus, is realizing that God has already given you, and he's talking about a lady, in, in, a young woman who was paralyzed at 15 and couldn't move or breathe on her own, but found contentment and satisfaction and joy in Christ. Contentment is realizing God has already given you everything you need for your present happiness. You don't need a better job. You don't need a bigger house. You don't need better behaved children. You don't need an upgrade on your spouse. You don't need more money in your bank account. You don't need a bigger nest egg. You don't need a better health. You don't need all those things. It's the wise person who doesn't grieve for the things they don't have, but rejoices over the things they do have. 
the compassion of Christ who gives you what you need when he gives you himself. Oceanbark, we can be satisfied in that which comes from the hand of Jesus. When we realize that Jesus is all we have, we will rejoice because we will realize that Jesus is all we need. That's a hard lesson. Those tears, they hurt and they sting and they're bitter. Well, when the Jesus wipes away those tears and like when we're walking through the valley and says, I'm scared, Jesus. And he says, I am with you. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. We only in the darkness of the valley of, at night can see the brilliance of the stars in this tapestry of light that's above us that we would not be able to see in the brightness of day from the mountaintop. But I'll tell you this, the desert is a place of spiritual growth and nourishment as we learn to trust our Savior who leads us and protects us and provides us. He gives us what we need, when we need it, and the amount we need. We can be satisfied with his provision in the desert, but the desert is not the final destination. Jesus, our Savior, our shepherd, is leading us to a land of plenty. He is leading us to the promised land. We could sing today too, I am bound for promised land. Turn to Isaiah chapter 25. In light of the very fact that we're about to take the body and blood of Christ and remember what Christ has done to defeat our greatest enemy, which is sin and death, and because God has defeated our greatest enemy, we can trust Him with lesser things. Those things that, that, uh, that cause us our hearts to worry and our fears. We realize that sin and death has been defeated and those lesser fears and enemies are also under His foot. Notice Isaiah 25 is on page 586, but right about halfway through your Bible. Uh, 586 of your pew Bible. Isaiah 25, verse 4. For you, O Lord, have been a stronghold to the poor. A stronghold to the needy in distress. Why? Because our God is compassionate. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of the day. So the song of the ruthless is put down. Though I hear the lions roaring in the distance and my fears welling up inside, I know that God is leading me somewhere. And though that path leads to the desert and causes me more and more to desire His, him, his satisfaction, His provision, to, to be grateful for His compassion, Jesus is leading me to somewhere absolutely glorious. And as we read this, I want you to think of Revelation 21 and hear the echoes of where the path of our Savior is leading us. Verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast. Not just 
Little pieces of bread and little pieces of fish that satisfy, but an overwhelming, sumptuous feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine. A rich food full of marrow, of well-aged wine refined. And He will swallow up on His mountain the covering that is cast over all His people. The veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord your God will wipe away the tears from all faces. The tears that you have cried in the desert. When you cried out to your heavenly Father, I don't think I can go anymore. And he says, yes, you can. I'm with you. Here is what you need. Though he will wipe away the tears from the faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. The people that set, called you names and mocked you and says you're foolish to believe such silliness that Jesus is real and he's leading you. Those voices will be silenced. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on the day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that He might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Ocean Park, we will not always be in the desert. The desert is teaching us to be satisfied in the only one that can fill our hearts, and that's Jesus Christ. There will be a day when the desolate places are no more, for Christ's abundance overflows. There will be the clouds of, uh, of doubt and confusion will be burnt off by the glory of God's wisdom when we understand it. And the fleeting sweetness of sin is forgotten, for Christ's provision is satisfying and deeper and better than anything we have ever tasted on our palate. Until that day, Trust Jesus today for the first time. Repent of your self-sufficiency and turn to Jesus and said, Lord, I am lost. Save me. I am a sinner. I need your grace. Lord, have mercy. Because the compassion of Jesus provides everything we need to be satisfied.